Well, hello and welcome. This is the sixth and final episode of Teddy Goes to the USSR, and it's titled Cold War Colored Glasses. And I'm joined here by Leah Goldman. Leah, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. I am assistant professor of history at Washington and Jefferson College and an associated scholar with the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And I'm a cultural historian of the Soviet Union. Leigh and I are here today to kind of talk about the documentary as a whole because, you know, you've just listened to five episodes of Teddy Goes to the USSR. And the question I walked away is like, well, what do you make of all of this? Like, what do you walk away from you know, listening to five episodes about this American tourist's journey. Um, and in this episode, this final sixth episode, we want to talk about some of our takeaways from the series. And we're going to listen to some clips and discuss them. Um, but before we get to that, I wanted to uh, give a bit about what I think the story is. And maybe this is something that we can talk about, too. And, you know, first, of course, is Teddy's extraordinary trip, right? He's there for three months. He goes in 19. He goes in 1968. He travels to every republic and does this diary and photographs. And and I think that's a pretty unique in and of itself. But really, you know, to get away from Teddy as an individual and his own individual experience, I figured that this really is about how you know during the Cold War, American tourists or Americans in general understood the Soviet Union. Um, and how the Cold War and the ideology and the global struggle and all of that stuff really informed how American people saw the Soviet Union. What did they expect? What they, what they assumed life was like? Um, and I think Teddy's trip is a good window into the tensions between assumptions and the realities that he experienced. Um, so first, uh, let's listen to a clip of you know, for here, let me set up the clip. This clip is from episode one. Uh, this is when Teddy first arrives in the Soviet Union and he gives his first impressions of, of what struck him right when he got into Moscow. So let's listen to that. Teddy left from Argentina with a layover in Liberia on Africa's west coast. Darned if when the airplane landed there, it got a rock in the engine. So I mean, threw everything off. Then on through Hungary and Poland to the Soviet Union. Teddy arrived in Moscow on April 5th, 1968. And he says that he was immediately hit with what he called typical Soviet experiences. And while his initial impressions were rooted in the exotic, it's not surprising that so-called typical Soviet experiences produce some culture shock for Americans like Teddy. And things were gray. And I went right to the National Hotel, which was on the edge of Red Square. Teddy couldn't have landed in a more central location. Built in 1903, the late Tsarist Hotel National hosted such American luminaries as Paul Robeson, John Steinbeck, and Armin Hammer. Even Bill Clinton stayed there during his vacation in 1969, as did Donald Trump in 1987. But I remember going into the elevator to go up to my room they had a fellow there, he must have been six feet tall, and he was dressed in a military-type uniform that was sort of a red-orange with gold braid, etc. And he stood there at almost at attention, and several people had accumulated, and more came. They came, they came. When he had a full elevator, he went, he took them up. And I thought, well, <laughs> welcome, Ro, you, you have arrived. We both went, we've both been to Russia. We met in Russia, in mm -hmm. fact, right? Um, and, you know, I don't, 
I don't know about you, but when I first got there, I had, you know, culture shock, first impressions, some of which not so different than Teddy. I was expecting, you know, things to be gray. Now, granted, both of us didn't go to the Soviet Union, but still, um, I was quite shocked. What were your impressions the first time you were in, in Russia? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, like, the, the sort of the overarching idea that Teddy is bringing here is something that's very familiar to me. Like you're, you're expecting things to be different and you're kind of anticipating that and looking for the difference. Um, but at the same time, like I don't, there, I don't necessarily vibe with everything he's saying here, right? Because he does say, oh, it was so terribly gray. And the first time I went to Russia, I went on a language studies to St. Petersburg in 2006 in the summer. And it was like, such a painfully beautiful city. And all of the buildings were these like pastel ice cream colors. And I just couldn't believe that I was in this amazing paradise of a place. Um, and part of that, honestly, was that I hadn't spent much time in Europe. There are other European cities that are that way. Um, and I wonder, yeah, I wonder how much different Teddy's experience would be if he had gone to Paris. You know, he would be bringing different assumptions to it. Um, but I, I mean, again, as you say, we haven't, neither of us went to the Soviet Union when it was still the Soviet Union, but my, my experience of St. Petersburg and Moscow has largely been that these are um, fairly typical, like, large European cities. Yeah. I also have an elevator story, though, oh, um, <laughs> which I think illustrates this idea of, like, you are looking for the difference, but sometimes you find it in places that you don't expect. Um, the first time that I went to the, uh, to Urgaspi, which is the pre-1953 Communist Party archive in Moscow, um, the reading room was on the fifth floor, and so I went to take the elevator. Um, and I got in the elevator, and there was already a woman in there, and I saw that she had pressed her button. And the first thing I noticed was that these buttons didn't light up. They, they actually pressed in. Um, so that was already different. And I thought, okay, navigating the waters here. And so I pressed the button for my floor, and it unpressed her button. Her button popped out, and she gave me a dirty look. And it just had never occurred to me. Like, I was terribly embarrassed that it had never occurred to me that elevators work differently in different countries. Right. You know, so as much as I was sort of approaching with this expectation that things would be different and I would adjust and I would learn so much, like, I did not think about elevators. Yeah. Well, I, I have, a, you know, I could, Teddy's experience resonated with me in two ways. First is, when I first went to Russia, I was expecting it to be gray. Like, literally gray. Because the images I had in my head were of kind of like people always looking down uh, in like shabby, you know, bland clothing. And the, 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 of course, the sky is supposed to be gray <laughs> and cold and all of this. And the buildings were supposed to be just kind of like, you know, drab colors. And I was, again, I was struck like you by this. I mean, I love this term you use, pastel ice cream color, because it really was, <laughs> in some cases, these pastel pinks, pastel greens. And I was like, what? This is totally different. But to me, it really spoke to, like, you know, having being a kid who grew up in the 1980s, despite the fact that there was no more Soviet system, my understanding of that place was still framed through those assumptions that I had, plus the fact that my advisor told me that going to Russia was like going camping. <laughs> and so I was, ex I was expecting, and this is something I, I wanted to ask you about, is, you know, I was prepared to, like, be camping in a major metropolitan city of Moscow, which I have to say, when I look back on it, is first off incredibly embarrassing that I thought that. And second, again, I think it speaks to, you know, even, even um, well-intentioned people 
uh, well-intentioned Americans still have this image uh, of Russia as something else. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I had long debates with myself about, you know, what to pack going for a year of research. And, you know, and everyone said, like, oh, bring your own toilet paper. And I thought, oh, for God's sake, I'm not going to bring my own toilet paper. It's not the Soviet time anymore. Um, and people said, bring duct tape. And I, I deliberated long and hard. And I was like, no, no, that's offensive. I'm not going to bring duct tape. Like, the first thing I needed was duct tape. And I had to, like, I could go and get it in a store. But, um, yeah, it, it was this, I mean, I think... I knew other other researchers who had specifically found like remote apartments, like European style fixed up apartments. I wanted something a little you know cheaper and more authentic in square quotes, um, and so I had a, a non remote apartment. And um, yeah, there was there was some definite navigating to figure out how to how to make that work. So I didn't expect to be going camping, but I think I it was it was a, a balancing act to figure out like what what needed what skills that I need to acquire and what things that I need to acquire to make this work. Mm -hmm. And what year were you there? That was, um, the first time I rented an apartment was in 2009 and 10. Uh, when I had gone in 2006, I was staying with a, a host mom. So yeah, I, my first trip was in 2000, 2000, and then I went back in 2002 for a couple of weeks, and then 2005, I spent a year, and then another year in 2009 is when I met you. Um, what, what did you find surprising? Um, everything? <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, uh, we've just been talking so much about difference. Um, and there, there was a lot that actually was surprisingly familiar. Like I, I had, um, come from New York. Um, and honestly, like Moscow is not that different, right? It's a big city. Um, you get around on public transit. There are, you know, museums and concerts to go to and grocery stores and parks. And like a lot of it was just sort of like urban living is urban living. Um, on the other hand, like something I noticed in the subway, I had thought, oh, well, the New York subway is like the best public transit in the world. Moscow public transit puts that to shame. Yeah. Um, and I noticed that, I think we've talked about this before, in the subway, there was such um, like a code of ethics and a code of behavior. Everybody in the subway system knew exactly like you stand here and you move when this happens and you let this lady sit down. And, you know, like these like there's just this etiquette that nobody has to teach each other and nobody has to negotiate because everyone knows. And yet you can feel like if anyone violates that a little bit, it will be absolute chaos because there are millions of people in the subway. <laughs> um, and so for me, as a, as a, as a foreigner, as a, as a newbie, I had to learn those rules by watching other people. I like that you bring that up because this is actually something that I really appreciated because I was coming from Los Angeles where big metropolitan city, but you rarely rub shoulders with other people because you're in your car all the time. And though I've taken public transportation in LA, there isn't that level of, uh, you know, these social norms and rules that people abide by just moving through space. Like I was fascinated the first time I was on a marshrutka. I thought this was an incredibly ingenious thing, the way people conducted themselves and essentially everyone kind of helping each other out. Um, the same with the metro, the way people walked through the metro, the way they stood on the cars, the way they interacted with one another. I was, you know, it's not to say that the United States is absent of these types of things, but it had a profound effect on me. And frankly, it, it was less alienating, weirdly enough. Yeah. 
Yeah, you can sense that it's really different, and yet you can sense a, a feeling of community because those rules don't work unless everybody agrees. Like it will be better for all of us as a community if we if we follow these rules. And I think the American ethos, like again, going back to New York subway, like people shove each other and shout at each other all the time because it's all like I need to get where I need to go and you need to get out of my way, as opposed to look, we're all trying to get somewhere. Let's do it together. Yeah. Turning back to Teddy too, one of the things that he was surprised by. Um, and he mentions it also in, in the documentary in another part is the ubiquity of military style uniforms, which actually resonates with me because I don't see a lot of military uniforms in the United States. Uh, any kind of military garb is voluntary <laughs> in the sense that it's a style. Um, but in Russia, I, in Moscow, which probably – and I also stayed in Rizan – where I saw a lot of people in uniform, but there's also a military school there. And Moscow's the capital, so it's kind of makes sense There's in their military holidays. But at the same time, I was struck by the number of people in kind of military wear. And it, it fed into, again, the assumption that Soviet Union slash Russia was a militarized society. Um, I don't know if you had any impressions like that um, where some of your, or even an assumption you had going there was kind of fulfilled or resembled your assumption? Mm. Well, I mean, thinking about uniforms, I think it's really interesting what you say, because America is also a very militarized society, but we keep that much more under wraps, right? Like service members have to dress in uniform, I guess, when they're on official business or if they want to, you know, get on an airplane first or something, but they don't just wear their uniforms. Um, and I did have much more the sense that Russians, and especially the the Soviet generation that was you know still around when I started going to Russia, um, they really had a sense that like certain clothes are for certain occasions, you know, um, and like if you're if you're going to an archive, you're you know, and you're a woman, you're going to wear a dress or a skirt, like you are going to dress up, like you do not show up in your jeans. Um, someone told me, you know, oh, they'll know you're an American, they'll know by your sneakers, <laughs> um, and it was true, like nobody else was wearing sneakers, everybody else had nice shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think there were there were sort of different different cultural assumptions about um, both gendered ways of dressing, but also also just sort of like what is what is it to be a person in public? I think Americans have less of a yes. sense of that. I, I think that's a really important point because that's something I've experienced in other places I've been to, like in Israel or in Germany. Uh, there is a there is a, a much clearer divide between public and private presentation yeah. uh, that, that it doesn't exist so much in the United States in my experience. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about because you know both of us went to Russia uh, working in archives, doing research, and, and one of the things I found curious is this, we used to gather on Friday nights with other researchers and drink, and a lot of it, it was about telling war stories. You know, and there is a, and I think back of it, there is a certain kind of competition with talking about, you know, when you ran into bureaucratic stuff or you had these kind of typical Russian experiences with like a babushka or something like this. Um, and I found this really interesting because, again, even here again are people who are interested in the place, they're studying this place, but yet there's this exoticism. Um, what is your, you know, kind of impression of, of this exoticism that goes along with going to Russia? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a Cold War hangover. Um, I very much agree. And I found that very frustrating, actually. I still find that frustrating often talk, talking with foreign researchers um, who go to Russia that, like, 
they'll be disappointed if they don't have one of these experiences, if some archivist isn't mean to them or whatever. And something that I really consciously tried to do when I knew that I was going for a year, I thought like, I'm going to go live in another place and I'm going to learn how things are done there. Mm -hmm. And like every time that I feel like it's weird, I'm just going to remind myself like you're not in your home, you right. know, you're in somebody else's home. And I think for a lot of researchers, I don't, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on anybody, but I think it's sort of like they see themselves as a little bit like spies going, you know, like, I'm going to go in and be a 007 or whatever, and I'm going to get my archival materials. And I mean, one of the funny things I think for us is that we were there in the like mid-2000s when the archives are probably as open as they are ever going to be, yeah. I mean, judging by current events. Um, but we were raised by scholars who had to really sort of fight for every scrap of information. And I think part of that maybe was that we were we were sort of cosplaying as our advisors a little bit. Like we felt like we weren't we were getting the full experience and we didn't really have to fight for things. And you just go into the archive and be like, can I have this? And they'd go like, yeah, sure. You know, <laughs> not a problem. Right, right. You know, it Russians um themselves or certain certain Russians speak about the desire for Russia to be a normal place. Right. And of course what they mean by normal is like something Western European whatever, their imagination of the Western, Western Europe. Um, I have this wonder, you know, I was attracted to studying the history of Russia and the Soviet Union because it was an abnormal place, right? The exoticism was one of the reasons why I was attracted to it. And I wonder, this issue of normality, if, if Russia became normal, like, I don't know, Germany, let's say, is an example. Would it be as interesting? Oh, I mean, hopefully, yes. But I think it would attract, it would attract a different crowd of researchers. I think we would all have to sort of adjust our expectations. So one experience that I had, um, uh, so I, I was there for research in like the 2009-10 academic year, and then I went back for three months in 2012, and then I just, you know, for one reason and another, wasn't able to go again until 2017. Um, and when I went in 2017. Everything was so different. I mean, there were there were like cafes and beer bars that you could go to, and that that culture had not existed. There was Wi-Fi everywhere. Um, I all of these skills that I had painstakingly developed for like secretly looking at my Moscow city map to make sure I was going the right direction to get to something like didn't need any of that anymore. You could just look at the map on your phone, and I I did feel disappointed. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is just like going anywhere else now. <laughs> No, I do wonder about that. I mean, uh, and this is more to say about the the strange tension between the, the interest and the exoticism and the exoticism lending to an intense interest. And I think, I mean, this is, of course, one of the reasons why Teddy went to the Soviet Union and why a lot of Americans went to the Soviet Union was out of this, this strange dynamic of, A, wanting to understand those evil empire, the evil people, the evil communists, and then, of course, you know, this experience of I think what you said about playing spies is something certainly that's going on. And, and in Teddy's case, the way they treated him almost made him behave like a spy uh, as, as a result of just this experience, but also going there, having this kind of cosplay. Um, so I, I find this like. Well, I think, I mean, I think that this is something that's really interesting about Teddy's story. Mm -hmm. I mean, Teddy's story is the kind of thing you look for in the archive. Like, can I find something that has, like, rich documentation? And because you were able to locate him 
and interview him, and there's the diary, and there's the KGB report. Like, there's so much material to work with there. Um, but he went at this moment when Americans were just starting to be able to go, you know. And so, yes, he wanted to go discover the Cold War other, and he wanted to, you know, be a spy um, and find out why the Soviet system was wrong. You know, like he already went in with the assumption the Soviet system is wrong. I will go find out what's wrong with it. I mean, obviously that colored his experiences, but at the same time, I think throughout the episodes, we see lots of moments where he's like, oh, okay. You know, this is this is better than I expected or I yeah. just different or like people are friendly and, you know, and so it's this really interesting moment of sort of first encounter. Yeah, definitely. Well, let, let's move on to some of the issues of the Cold War, because the way I structured the documentary is I wanted episodes three and four. So episodes is about three is about consumerism. Teddy goes shopping and episode four is about race. Teddy talks about race uh, because these are these are two issues during the Cold War. Of amongst many that each side used against the other, right? The United States used consumerism uh, again to bash the Soviet Union, and of course, the Soviet Union used American racism to bash the American bash the American system. So let's let's listen to a quote about how um, Teddy, you know, addressed the issue. That he he was constantly they keep constantly asking Teddy like, so why are you still lynching blacks in America? What's going on there? Uh, and and this is how he dealt with that question. In the early 1960s, Teddy was busy working on civil rights legislation with Senator Mike Mansfield. He too saw civil rights as a narrative of progress that exemplified American ideals. But when Soviet people confronted him on race, he rebutted with another Cold War theme, consumerism. And the argument that I used to best advantage, not only for the official people who were jumping on me, but also for uh, people that I met on the sidewalk, etc., is that despite the problems for our black uh, friends and neighbors, and they were many, there were blacks in America owned more automobiles than existed in the Soviet Union. Most Americans visiting behind the Iron Curtain played defense when it came to questions about race. The best they could do as ambassadors was to either put up with the queries, mumble some defense, or just hope the issue would quickly go away. We just heard this clip. This clip is from uh, episode four, which is about race. And I I was really attracted to this moment when, when Teddy said, well, when they would ask me about racial problems in the United States, yeah, there are racial problems, but black people can own cars. That took my breath away. That absolutely gobsmacked me that like he could possibly think that that was an answer that like having a car makes up for racial injustice in any kind of way <laughs> um but at the same time it strikes me as a very american mindset you know like if you've got stuff that's fine like that's life is about having stuff and yeah. I, you know it just yeah blew my mind yeah it and it really does encapsulate this this issue as you said that you know for americans for you know, many Americans, having stuff, right, living the so-called good life or the comfortable life or whatever it may be, you know, um, covers over or softens like daily injustices, uh, and and of course, you know, on the one hand, in defense of Teddy, you know, going to the Soviet Union, he did see himself as somewhat of an ambassador. 
And here he's repeatedly attacked. And when I, I remember talking to him about this, being asked repeatedly about, you know, the lynching of black people in America, you know, he was getting frustrated with it because he also felt that they didn't really want to talk about the issue. They just wanted to just, you know, hit America for its, you know, justifiably horrible practices. Um, uh, and so, but it, to me, this, this moment also encapsulated this strange relationship as you said, with consumerism and the Cold War and consumerism in how we evaluate Soviet society and how we understand American society. I can, I can understand the idea of feeling like an ambassador. I mean, the first time that I went to Russia, um, George W. Bush was the president, and that was terribly embarrassing. And I felt, I felt constantly like I had to explain and be like, I didn't vote for him, it's all right. Um, and then the next time I went, Obama was president, and I was like, well, this is just a weight off my shoulders. Um, and an interesting thing about Teddy is that, uh, you know, his ideas are not necessarily the most progressive, but he does admit that America has racial problems, and he apparently did work on civil rights legislation. Um, and I can understand how that doesn't feel like a genuine invitation to a conversation to be like, well, you lynch black people. Um, but it's also a missed opportunity and that I think many of us would miss because it's hard to admit when you're at fault. It's hard to admit when your country's at fault. But there's a missed opportunity there for him to say like, yeah, we do. And that's, that's really awful. And I, I am ashamed that we do that. Tell me about some of the, you know, the issues that you find in your society. You know, a conversation can come out of it, but he was sort of already expecting to be on the defensive and already needing to believe that the U.S. was superior to the Soviet Union. And so I don't think he was able to have that conversation. No, I, especially, yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and again, you know, I just also imagine the fact that he's asked so many times about this. I mean, I don't know how many times, but he gave me the impression he was asked, you know, five or six times. Um, and and he was also asked about the Vietnam War as well, which he he also got frustrated about. Um, but it, you know, what's interesting to me about the racial issue is, A, um, I, I think here in America, we don't consider it as an international issue, um, as an issue where, and it's not just the Soviet Union in this period, it's every country <laughs> virtually, particularly countries in Africa who are decolonized, who have people and diplomats come to the United States and experience Jim Crow, and I, I mentioned this in, in the episode. Um, but I think we tend to, as Americans, tend to think of it only as a domestic issue. And I think we're, we are, uh, or many might be defensive, because why are you prying into our you know, problems? What about you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I get that. And I, I imagine that it would be hard coming from his position to to just sort of have this asked over and over again. Honestly, something it reminds me about is um, the, uh, the, the people who were planted in the crowd at the American National Exhibition in Sokolniki Park in 1959. Um, yeah, the Komsomol would like plant people in the crowd to sort of monitor the conversations happening and throw out things about like, you know, racial relations in the U.S. or, or American imperialism. The Vietnam War hadn't started yet um, officially. Um, but yeah, it does seem like something that Soviet people are sort of primed to, to hit on. Mm -hmm. And I also, though, like if, if there was a Soviet Teddy you know, if Ivan Ivanish had come to the U.S., I'm sure they'd get all that kind of thing, too. Yeah. You know, so in a way, this is sort of a, a very Cold War story yeah. that, like, Ivan Ivanich would be asked all the time about, like, 
oh, but you have no consumer choice. Oh, you can't really vote, you know, like whatever. And he'd probably get frustrated too and get on the defensive. And, and you know, and so you can, you can understand where Teddy's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I, that response, like, but they have cars, <laughs> you know, like it's just, um, that's him. That's yeah. Teddy going there. Yeah. Um, now too, the, the way Teddy and a lot of Americans, and I remember this as a kid, right? My, my images of, Soviet life is one of consumer dearth. Like there's just nothing to buy to the point where I get had the impression people are like always hungry and things like this. And and Teddy throughout his trip, he comments a lot on what Soviet people can buy. What are they buying? How much things cost? How much does you know, uh, uh, average worker earns X amount a month, what can they buy? He's very invested in these questions. And I just found it a really strange way. Uh, Maybe this is part of a lot in hindsight, since I think in our society, we could definitely do a lot less consumption. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. What, What do you think of this issue of evaluating Soviet life and the quality of life through consumption. I mean, I think Teddy is, I mean, I do think it's a very American perspective, but I think he's also very much primed for it because a lot of the Cold War rhetoric is based around that. I mean, that was the whole idea of exchanging national exhibitions, right? Mm. Uh, the Soviets come and do their exhibit in, in New York and they show off technology. The Americans show go to do their exhibit in Moscow and they show off consumer goods. Um, but also, I mean, the Cold War ends up in, you know, from the thaw onwards, the Cold War ends up really being about this question of who can provide the good life. Um, and the American version of the good life is like whoever has the most stuff wins. You yeah. know, the more things you can have and the cheaper they are. And I mean, I think this also marks Teddy as a baby boomer mm. that in that generation, like the more stuff you can have and the more cheaply you can buy it, like you are winning at America. You are winning at life. Um, whereas... In my experience with Russians, and you know, and like these things are complicated, and surely to some extent this does come from from shortage. But there's also this Soviet idea of cultured consumption, mm-hmm. and that you know, to consume is to consume well. That you know, okay, you have fewer clothes in your closet, but they're all really nice. You know, they're all made of good materials. They're all very durable. Uh, they all fit you really well. Like fast fashion would not make any sense in the Soviet Union. <laughs> and so, it, so to some extent, I think it's a, a, a different idea of, um, in yeah, in a way, I might say that I suspect Soviet people were not any less interested than Teddy in what things cost. Um, they just had a different goal in asking those questions. And and one of the things I find um, fascinating with this issue around consumerism, and and this was in the episode three is the social relations that result from shortage. Since money, uh, you have more money than things to buy. Um, To get access to goods, access is more important. You have to do it through various social connections, right? If you know somebody who has some sort of position of influence to get access to good X. Um, And so you have this really interesting, kind of like what we were talking about at first with the metro, these rules, these practices of people that bind society together in an interesting way around this this issue of overcoming or getting access to goods that I find incredibly uh, interesting as well about, about an aspect of Soviet life. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that, I mean, to some extent, that still persists. I remember uh, when I was in Moscow, my, my Russian teacher, because um, I, I was taking lessons, and her, her husband worked in a theater, and they needed an English translation of some play, and for whatever reason, they were having trouble getting it, and she asked me, do I know how to get it? And, you know, of course, I just went online and ordered it. You know? <laughs> I'm not sure why that hadn't occurred to her. Um, but what I was expecting is that it would come and then she would, you know, pay me back for it or give me a free lesson or like whatever. Um, and instead, um, she gave me really good tickets to um, the inspector general at her husband's theater. Hmm. And I thought that was a lot nicer. You know, <laughs> like I like that much better because it was a thing that I probably wouldn't have bought for myself because um, I would have been intimidated, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so I think that that sort of social relationship that builds up over time, I love the, the gift economy of like, I mean, I just like buying people presents, you know, and um, and I like receiving presents. And so that that is something that I think is just much warmer. Um, and that that social relationship doesn't exist in the same way here, I guess, because nobody ever has trouble getting things like if you have the money, then you can get it. Right. Right. And I and I and. You know, this, of course, uh, in the last 30 years has been changing quite rapidly in Russia, right? Uh, money is more now the, the mode of exchange than these in-kind favors. Um, and, and I wonder, and I don't know, I've never actually asked anybody this who, you know, lived in the Soviet period and now, um, if there's a bit of feeling of loss or alienation from the 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 devalue of the social relations in terms of how to get access to goods, um, I'd be curious to know. I don't know if you've heard anything. I mean, not directly, but I know I know that Russian friends I've talked to really value the way that, I mean, I don't think they would put it in these terms, but essentially what they're saying is they, they really value the relationships that come out of constantly doing favors for each other. Um, it makes you feel knowledgeable, you know, like you're a person who knows how to get stuff. I, know, I can talk to this person who can talk to this person. Um, but it's also like you're in constant contact with your friend group and you're really close to each other because you can't afford for those relationships to break up. Um, and you're always needing something and someone's providing it to you. And I think, yeah, I think losing that social relationship is, is sort of part of the alienation of post-Soviet life. Speaking of alienation, um, of course, the other thing is, is Teddy's interactions and, and that clip of him talking about you know, black people in cars and stuff. It comes out of his interactions. And one of the things that struck me, I mean, a couple of things that struck me about his interactions with regular people, um, that A, the, the desire to um, try to figure out what is underneath the veneer of propaganda, trying to get at real life, um, but, but try to get at it in a way that are of particular American concerns. Like, so, you know, how do you, how does the political system work? Do you get to vote in the Soviet Union or free speech or any of these kind of general American political but also economic concerns were a way to get at the truth of Soviet life? And then when people didn't express a certain level of dissatisfaction, there's kind of a skepticism and disappointment that comes out of that. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, among your sort of interlocutors in this series, Dina Feinberg talks about this really well, yeah. how like there is basically nothing that Soviet people can show to an American, to, and you know, Teddy is just one example, that they'll believe is like real Soviet life. You know, if, if things look good, it must be a veneer. Yeah. You know, if someone's friendly to him, he immediately suspects that they've been planted by the KGB. Um, 
yeah, he always he always feels like he's not seeing the real Soviet life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think ultimately what he's not seeing is something that matches up to his assumptions exactly. What do you make of this? Because, you know, Teddy is just one person of, of many of this practice because, frankly, his desire to meet Soviet people to see what Soviet life is really like communicates to me. I don't find it abnormal, though it when I think about it, it is kind of <laughs> abnormal. And what do you make of this? desire to uncover, to expose, because Dina talks about this too, that journalists' mission, American journalists in the Soviet Union, their mission was to, quote unquote, expose Soviet real daily life. And I I found this, I find this impulse really strange because I don't think I would go to another country and with that same question. But I mean, this is intimately tied up with, you know, Cold War politics, right? Because you need the Soviet Union to be wrong. They all need the Soviet Union to be wrong. Teddy needs the Soviet Union to be wrong. Like his, he's telling himself that his mission is to just go see what it's like there. But what his mission is really to do, and I think this sort of comes through in the way that he um, makes sense of his experiences, what he's there to do is find out like what's wrong with the Soviet system and like what's what are the things that are ultimately going to bring it down? He wants to be affirmed in his belief that America is better. And I think that was so drilled into everybody in in America in the Cold War that how could you not go in with that framework? Right. And we just don't have that same kind of like intense relationship with, I don't know, France or Britain or Germany, West Germany at that point, as we do with the Soviet Union. Yeah, that, that's what's that's what are the things with the Cold War contest between the American and and Soviet America, the United States and the Soviet Union is their self image of each other is so dependent upon the other, right? To the to the point I I, I sometimes think maybe this is a bit, bit Cold War nostalgia on my part, but it actually I think in in some weird ways made b- both societies better to like live up. So I, I here I'm thinking of terms of like science technology, right? and the space race. This intense competition required both states to invest in their societies, invest in education, invest in science and technology, invest in all sorts of things that I feel like, you know, they're still there, but they don't have the same gravity as say they did during the Cold War. I would have to say yes and no to that, because certainly with something like science and technology, I mean, the American government puts incredible investment into those areas, and that's why we're able to go to the moon. That's why we're able to advance so much as we are. I mean, the same thing in the Soviet Union, you know, amazing scientific advances. Um, At the same time, though, I think that same impulse um, causes the U.S. to not deal with a lot of its social crises. You know, like, we don't want to be embarrassed. We think we can be good at technology, you know, so we're going to be the best at technology. Um, do we know how to give civil rights to all people in this country? No, let's hide that conversation. Let's not have that conversation because the Soviets are watching and they're looking for the chinks in our armor. So I, I think it can have a, both a positive yeah. and a negative effect. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly in terms of like race relations and and standard of living questions of poverty, it, it pushed to create a narrative of progress, mm-hmm. right? A, a kind of building crescendo like, yeah, yeah, things are bad but they're getting better. Well, and maybe this is another way to understand Teddy's comment about like, but they have cars, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, yes, we have racial problems, but we have cars, you know, right. all black, <laughs> more, there are more cars owned by black people in the US than there are cars in the entire Soviet Union. Like, yeah. how is that in all relevant? And yet to him, it's, it's deeply relevant. To him, it is a fact that says America is better. America yeah. has more progress, more freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's also in, in particularly with the car issue, 
it is a particular issue of um, it resonates with Soviet people mm. and the sense of prosperity, right, in the sense of the good life, because they desperately also want cars. Their access to cars is very limited, um, though improving slowly. Uh, and so I think also the 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 image of the car also has resonance in that respect too. Yeah. Um, let's let's move on to the last section of our conversation and listen to another. Uh, let's well let's listen to another clip. One of the things that amazes me in looking back at my trip to the Soviet Union in 1968 was how badly they were running the country. The desperate hunger for consumer goods, the desperate hunger to be involved in the direction of their own country, the continual propaganda by the the leaders of the Soviet Union and about how they were going to destroy us. And yet, against that backdrop, the Soviet Union was crumbling from within. Uh, so uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on this clip? I, it's an interesting one because I feel like the, the sort of overall assessment that Teddy is giving is not unexpected in terms of a Cold War framework. But it also doesn't really align with the evidence that we've heard in the previous episodes, because a lot of what he talks about is, oh, there, there are lots of things in the stores for people to buy. It's, there's a lengthy process to actually buy the thing, but they're available. Um, he's impressed with the, the food he sees in stores and the, the dry goods and appliances. And, you know, it just seems that he, is, you know, when he comes to making his overarching assessment, he's reverts to this this view of like, oh, but nothing's there and everybody's desperately unhappy and the government is holding them back. And his own like eyewitness estimate, uh, um, his own eyewitness evidence doesn't seem to bear that out. Yeah, that 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 is a, um, I found that a consistent theme. Um, and, and I'll give another example from the documentary. So at one point he, he says, you know, they hide everything, they controlled everything. And so, you know, the, the guides would take me around and, and I, f I found he, he insisted, he, he repeated several times about how things are hidden. And so at one point I asked him, okay, I'm like, so Teddy, like, how much time did you spend going around with guides and how much time did you spend just kind of walking around? And he told me 90% of the time was walking around. And so I thought this is really kind of strange because... If, if most of his time was that controlled by, say, guides or tours or whatever, then I would understand. But the fact that he kind of went around on his own, and he said at some point that I saw, I went off one of the main streets and I saw some, like, basically slums. Um, so I, I never really understood this strange tension between having all this freedom to walk around uh, and and the fact that things are hidden. Yeah, no, and I think it's just his sort of baseline assumption that um, he can't be seeing the real picture. Even when he's seeing something like slums, he can't be seeing the real picture. Or maybe that's the one window into the real picture that he's getting. But, you know, he, he meets people who are friendly to him, and he immediately thinks they're all KGB plants. Mm -hmm. um, he just... It's interesting because, like, the in-tourist program is there to invite him into Soviet life to right. see for himself how great it is. Um, and he wants to go and see for himself, and yet 
he only sees what he wants to see. He, yeah. Like, if he sees things that don't match his assumptions, he assumes that somehow, you know, this is the Pachomkin village thing. Something's been set up to, to trick him in some way. And this is, this is the theme of the fifth episode, this idea that, you know, a couple of strange contradictions are going on. So one is between official and unofficial. So he says, you know, and rightly so, I don't want many official meetings. He doesn't want to be, you know, shown collective farms and all this stuff, I mean, <laughs> completely natural. Um, but at the same time, he, and he feels, okay, so that the official stuff is hidden, it's propaganda, but regular people are a window into like real Soviet life. Um, and this contradiction always, I find quite strange because and it goes back to this, his, the clip we heard, which is, well, um, if you talk to real people, you get a sense of what real Soviet life is like, and then you can see why the system is failing. Right, right. <laughs> and that, that last part is not something that he's gotten from his conversations. I, I mean, in a way, I think this just highlights the, the, limits, the limits on the possibilities of this you know, project of first person, everyday Cold War interaction you know, across the, the Soviet-American divide. Um, because I, I imagine this would be the same for a Soviet traveler in America. Yeah. Both sides are sort of approaching with a certain framework that they're not willing to give up for all sorts of you know, personal and political reasons. Um, and so whatever they see, they're going to filter through that lens just as Teddy does. Right, right, right. And given, and given the, the stakes in the sense that this is the Cold War, you know, this is a, a contest between two supposedly antagonistic systems – um, and I should also say the fact that on the Soviet side, and this goes to another strange tension that's throughout, the desire to have foreigners come because you want to show them the Soviet Union. You want to normalize it to a certain extent. You want to show them, hey, look, we live just like, you know, you people, more or less. Um, but at the same time, they're very suspicious. They're, you know, surveillance, control, trying to control the narrative. All of these things are definitely present. Um, and... You, you can see this. It's we, it's interesting to me that Teddy has similar tensions, <laughs> just the opposite in a way. Yeah, yeah, no, and that that was something that struck me. Uh, I don't remember which episode it was in, but um, your your historian interlocutor was saying there's this phrase like astronomy, yes. like don't embarrass us in front of foreigners. So so even even in the Soviet officials and guides approach to other Soviet citizens, they're saying like, you know, put on your yeah. best face, you know, make us look good. Don't take bubble gum from Americans. <laughs> um, and yet, as much as they're trying to control the narrative from that side, Teddy's going to come at it from the other side and he's, he's going to see what he wants to see no matter what, yeah. um, whether or not that's what's actually happening in front of him. So this is, I mean, in a way it's sad, right? Because there is this genuine effort mm -hmm. on both sides to sort of meet in the middle and discover each other. And yet those frameworks are, are preventing that, that uh, genuine understanding from happening. Yeah, yeah, at least on a, on a larger kind of level. Um, I think it's very successful in this very, these intimate, encounters with, say, Soviet people, and you just kind of realize, oh, they're just kind of like me in this sense. But still, this larger ideological whatever umbrella also shapes things. Yeah, they're just like me, but but somehow they have it worse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What do you what do you make of this comment that he made about like, um, they're holding their citizens back, and it doesn't have to be this way? I don't know what he means by that. That sort of seems like he's reverting to a, a platitude just to finish off his sentence somehow, just to sort of make round it off nicely. Um, what does he mean it doesn't have to be this way? 
Like his whole idea is that it is this way because he's in a communist system and right. communism is wrong. Right. So it doesn't have to be this way means what? Like if only they would embrace capitalism? I think so. And I think I think this goes to, you know, another major Cold War trope and that is which I think is shared by both sides, and that is your system is inhuman, right? Your system is unnatural. Mm-hmm. You know, from the American side, humans are inherently property-loving, maximizing profit, et cetera, kind of really, you know, rational economic actors, right? So capitalism works for that. And then from the Soviet side, they're like, no, 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 no. Humans are social, we're collective, we're cooperative, et cetera, et cetera. And our system is the natural one. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, so you do you do get this, and that's how I interpreted th- that, his comments about it doesn't have to be this way and the sense of it's a system that's imposed. And that imposition gets extra weight by the fact that, you know, there's the American democracy on, from his view, is the kind of best system, let's say. And there is no democracy in the Soviet Union, so it's an imposed system. All right. Well, let's listen to our last clip. Uh, this is from episode five, where Alexei Golubyov is talking about how he understands the changes going on in the Soviet Union um, and how they connect to other things going around the world. All of this resulted in psychological changes that placed the self at the center. I describe it in terms of barely visible or at least barely verbalized, yet fundamental social change from below. and. One particular example is that during stagnation, we observe the emergence of new biopolitics. Biopolitics is the political management of people's bodies, behaviors, and morals at the individual and societal levels. Alexei says that the new Soviet biopolitics of the late 1960s and 1970s was not the collectivism of earlier periods. It reveals itself in such things as the proliferation of self-help and self-care literature. Self-help literature is usually linked with things like how to make friends and influence people or the power of positive thinking. Basically, ways to govern yourself to better navigate the demands of capitalism. The genre of self-help literature in the Soviet context emerged in the late 1960s. And in the, throughout the 1970s, there were books published on uh, psychotherapeutic self-help and medical care in hundreds of thousands and some probably in millions of copies. Books like Vladimir Levy's The Art of Being Yourself and The Art of Being Different or the popular works of the Soviet sexologist Igor Kun. There is a, an increased feeling of social alienation in the late uh, Soviet context that explains why these genres of self-help and self-care are so popular. What I see is increased expectations of what it means to be a kind of successful and good. Uh, a good citizen on both sides of the Iron Curtain. And so you're expected to be successful in your professional life, in your family life, right? You're expected to be uh, a perfect father and mother. You are supposed to be successful in your sexual life. And when you fail, you turn to self-help literature. And this is part of global modernity. So this is not Soviet or American or Swedish. I was I found this clip incredibly fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, but before I, I talk about some of the things that I thought, I'm really kind of curious what you think of of this. 
This is fascinating to me. I had no idea there was Soviet self-help literature. And that's just my own ignorance. You know, I'm, I'm sure the scholarship is out there. Um, I tend to think of self-help literature as like, like that, that loneliness and alienation. I associate it so much with sort of late capitalism. And, you know, we're all sort of in our own little smaller and smaller bubbles, surrounded by stuff, but alienated from other people. Um, and that this is something that capitalism does to us. And that's why there's so much self-help literature um, and cult joining and whatever in um, in the West when capitalism kind of reaches its, its peak in the 60s and 70s. Um, I'm sure someone will argue with that framework, but that's what I'm doing for now. Um, yeah, so on the one hand, it's very surprising to me that this happens in the Soviet Union. But on the other hand, I can I can think of two two ways to think about it. One is that the Cold War really becomes about making the good life, and that's framed largely in terms of consumerism. And yeah. so it's not that surprising, perhaps, that like if consumerism is what Amer makes Americans feel lonely, ultimately, it will also make Soviet people feel lonely. There's <laughs> not enough structures to, to counteract that. Uh, because you do see families moving into private apartments and, you know, and separating in, in different kinds of ways um, in the late Soviet Union. Another thing I can think of, though, to connect this to is some of the, the sort of self-work that Soviet citizens do in the 1930s that, say, Jakob Helbeck has written about yeah. um, this sort of fashioning the Stalinist soul. Um, and maybe, maybe there's a connection between that and this self-help literature that comes along later with, a, you know, obviously a different framework, but it's still working on that idea of the perfectibility of the individual. You're right to point out that that there's always been this trend within the Soviet period of, of individual self-improvement, right? Uh, to, to work on the self, to become a better citizen, a better communist, whatever it may be. But <clears throat> so there is that. And, and I would love for someone to look into this stuff and, and, and look at some of those issues. But at the same time, I'm, I, I'm still I'm struck you know, by, and, and people in the social scientists in the 1970s spoke about convergence, right? The United States and the Soviet Union, despite their differences, are converging along a similar timeline of modernity. And I think there's something to that. But what, I, what really strikes me is that at that very moment, you get a shared sense of social alienation, right? You know, and in for us who study the Soviet Union, we tend to talk about this period as like, oh, the ideology is hollow, it's all performative, it's, you know, but what Alexei says is like, well, yeah, that's not good enough because Soviet citizens are also becoming skeptical of science. You know, they're going into the occult, they're diving into things like astrology, they're going into this kind of self-help literature, which I think is an offshoot of all of those genres. Um, so, and, and here you have a similar phenomenon, at least in the United States, this is the birth of self-help literature, right? <laughs> this is the birth of like, you know, personality tests in the workplace and all of this self-psychological, you know, I don't know, self-reflection or something like that. Sure. And then people going on like silent retreats and, you know, health spas and at, at its most extreme religious cults. Mm. I mean, all of that, yeah. all of that seems to be happening in, in both areas. Yeah. The flirtation with Eastern religions, mm -hmm. um, like Juliana First's book on hippies, right? They're getting into Eastern religions too. And, and as are many others, yoga, this kind of stuff. I mean, these are happening uh, across the Iron Curtain. And I felt that was this new, what Alexei calls a new biopolitics, this focus on the self and bettering the self, it really is conducive to 
um, you know, what we now call globalization, right? Where the national particularities, there, there are trends that are th regardless of political system, let's say. Yeah, and something else this makes me think of is that, I mean, on, on the one hand, the, you know, the, the, the turn towards the self is sort of a, a turn away from politics. And when we when we talk about late socialism, a lot of what we talk about is this idea about like the ideology is hollowed out. People are not so interested in politics anymore, um, and so sure, so they'll turn to the self and they'll they'll sort of go away from national particularity. Um, but I think we talk about it less in the Western context. But perhaps it's the same phenomenon, you know, like when we think about the you know malaise of the 1970s and, and even into the 80s and stagflation and all of that stuff in the Western context. I think this is also, I mean, and you know, post Nixon, this is also a moment of us losing losing faith in politics. Perhaps not in in terms of like democracy and capitalism. There are plenty plenty of Americans still sort of fighting that Cold War battle. Um, but on an individual level, I think people are also sort of turning away from this idea of you know politics is what centers your life. Yeah, yeah, and and also just basic social organization. You know, the fact that in this period beginning in the 1970s, you have the dwindling of things like bowling leagues, the beginning of them, um, which I think really culminates by the 1990s. But you get a you get a decrease in membership and a variety of different social organizations, whether it's the Elks Club, the Boy Scouts, I don't know, the Knights of Columbus, all of these things that are part of social life. And then I think in the Soviet Union, a similar thing where there's more and more skepticism or disillusionment with like, you know, the Young Communist League or maybe some of these other organizations. Uh, people are seeing them more as just kind of something you have to do just because, you know, right. you just have to go through the motions. Right, and you want to find your particular group of people who feel as you do. Um, some of the Soviet baby boomer memoirs write about this. Uh, Ludmila Alexeyeva writes about it, you know, like, I, I couldn't go to the parades, I just wanted to find my people that I could hang out with and talk. And that's even looking into the, the late 50s and early 60s. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is, it is an interesting thing. And, you know, when you use the term convergence, that sort of rings with um, Andrei Sakharov's idea of the, you know, the convergence of the two systems into a sort of a world governance that will ensure peace for all, all eternity. Um, and I think part of what is sort of sweetly naive and not workable about that framework is that it's political. Yeah. And the convergence that we're talking about here is happening all in the realm of the social and the personal. Yeah, yeah. And this is this is one of the challenges I had when I was kind of thinking of all the episodes together. You know, what is the overarching story? And this notion of mutual alienation <laughs> and the respected you know, geographical, political, whatever, economic um, spheres, I, I found like a really interest, com a really compelling thing that it's not just, you know, the social science convergence. It's something deeper in how people perceive and behave and go about their lives that seems to have currency across the Iron Curtain. Absolutely. Yeah. Any final thoughts before we wrap things up? Uh, well, okay, so something something that I might like to touch on is um, in that last clip um, from Teddy, not the one we've just listened to, but the one before, he sort of rounds it off by saying, and so we can see the Soviet Union starting to crumble from within. Um, and I think something that is sort of a, an evergreen of the Cold War era and even the post-Cold War era is that we we try to we try to pinpoint like when when did the Soviet Union start falling apart and people have made all sorts of arguments you know it, it started um, with perestroika it started with stagnation it started with desalinization it started with 
1917, you know, <laughs> um, people, people will find these moments all along. And um, so I'm not surprised that Teddy is thinking that way, particularly as he's, he's sort of looking back and yeah, reflecting so on his experience. Um, but I also think that it's, it's sort of ahistorical to try to pinpoint that because nobody ever knows in the moment what's going to happen. Everybody's just sort of working with the inputs that they have. Um, and I don't think that that's the most interesting question that we can ask ourselves about the Soviet Union. When did it start falling apart? No. Um, I think asking ourselves, looking into researching all the different kinds of dysfunction and where they come from and how people respond to them, that's ultimately, I think, more, more valuable than trying to pinpoint the start of the end. Yeah. And, and, and plus, you know, when you identify a, pin, a point in the past saying, okay, this is when the beginning of the end, you're, you're imposing a determinism on history uh, rather than a more fragmented zigzag way. You're somehow the question becomes, why are you prioritizing X over Y? Right? Because, you know, there are things like really kind of silly I remember watching this documentary about the Beatles in the Soviet Union, and the documentary even argued that it was the Beatles that brought down communism. And I mean, <laughs> I get the catchiness of that. That's a good hook. But I mean, as a the efficacy of it, uh, I don't think so. Right. I, I don't I don't think that's actually like you, I think I completely agree with what you said, asking when was the beginning of the end is just not the most interesting question. It, in fact, it might be the wrong question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's a question we can only ask because it ended. And if it hadn't ended, we wouldn't think of this question in the first place. <laughs> yeah. We'd be still stuck in when is it going to end? Right. Right. <laughs> well, and that's, yeah, that also tells us how, how our Cold War framework still informs the research questions that we ask today sometimes. Well, Leah, thank you very much for, for joining me for this sixth episode that kind of discuss some of the issues that came out of the documentary, and I hope listeners enjoyed this and the series as a whole. And if you haven't heard the series, please go back and then listen to us or listen to us and then go through the whole series. It depends on what you want to do. But uh, thanks. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolute blast, and I am so glad to have been part of Teddy's Journey to Moscow. Teddy Goes to the USSR is written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Special thanks to Leah Goldman for her participation, and special thanks for Teddy Rowe for sharing his story, diary, and photographs. Music is by Elliot Holmes. Funding for Teddy Goes to the USSR was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Center at the University of Pittsburgh, and monthly patrons of the SRB podcast. If you want to learn more about Teddy's trip and the Soviet Union, go to the series website at teddy2ussr.com. And if you're enjoying Teddy Goes to the USSR, please consider becoming a patron of the SRB podcast so we can do more narrative audio like this. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog. And you can follow Teddy Goes to the USSR on your favorite podcast app.